Good morning. I will be reading uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, then skipping over to 15 through 18. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. We have been making our way through uh, what we've called the women in Jesus' life. Uh, the women that Matthew chose to include in his uh, genealogy of Jesus as he opened his gospel to tell us his story. We've included Eve and Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. And we recognize the incredible faith, or at least the incredible way God's promises came through them. An incredible faith in each one, different in every single situation, but determined, risk-taking, life-changing, and highly unexpected faith. But more than their testimonies of trusting God, in reality, their inclusion in the genealogy is a testimony to God's grace and His power that can take any life. And it needs to be said... As the people who would have read Matthew's gospel 2,000 years ago, or nearly 2,000 years ago, when they first read it, the inclusion of those names would say that if God can use those life, he can take any life, including my life, and fold it into his plan, his blessing, and his good. Today, we're going to take a closer look at the last of Matthew's names. And maybe it's the most unique story of all. As Matthew says of her, this is the one of whom was born Jesus, who is called Messiah. You know her as Mary. Probably her friends in Nazareth called her Miriam. Her most famous words are not necessarily a speech, but just a simple response. The angel has come to her and in in a, in a way of summarizing what he said, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And then Mary's line, Mary's response to this, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What a powerful testimony of a life that is submitted to God's will in their life. Matthew will emphasize several different themes in his early chapters than Luke does. And we just read from Luke. Luke is where Mary speaks so often, even sings a song before she's done. Matthew, however, lets us still hear the story of God's power at work in his mother, in this mother, for his son. First of all, when Mary enters the story, we have no backstory for her at all. We don't know who her parents are. We have just read an entire lineage 
of people that lead up to Joseph and to Jesus. But for Mary, we don't know who her parents are. We don't necessarily know where she's from, except that we know that Joseph is from Nazareth, and so we believe that she is probably a local resident there in Joseph. We also don't necessarily have any sense that there's anything special that we're supposed to take note of. If you were reading the genealogy, again, when Matthew first wrote it, and you didn't know how the story went, if you were a good Jew, you knew so many of the names in the genealogy, and then when you came to the end and he said, Joseph, the husband of Mary, and you would go, who? And it is that incredible anonymity that makes her one of the great stories that we get to take take advantage of, we get to look at. Secondly, just like all the other women in the story, she is also surrounded by scandal. The announcement of her pregnancy, or her pregnancy becoming known, would have been a horrific thing in her day and time. We'll talk more about the wedding traditions in just a minute, But the minute that she became betrothed to Joseph, it is a much more binding relationship than the one that you and I would say is an engagement. Although, I noticed that the Kosses sent out mail this week that said, Mr. and Mrs. Koss. I'm I'm thinking they think they're married at this point. I, I don't know about that. But in Mary's day, to be betrothed to Joseph was in reality to be married to him. There was to be no infidelity in that period of time. In fact, the year that took place between the time of the betrothal, the announcement that this is who I will wed, and the acceptance of that invitation, and the year later when the wedding would take place, at least one thing that was going on there is it gave plenty of time. If there was any hint that there had been any infidelity, possibly ongoing infidelity, it would have shown up in that year because a baby would come in that year. And so the scandal surrounds this unknown woman, this one whose story we will tell over and over for the last 2,000 years, but in reality, prior to this, a completely unknown woman who shows up pregnant in the midst of her betrothal and not because of her intended, her betrothed, Joseph. And yet she risks everything in being faithful to God. Deuteronomy chapter 22 will describe the punishment of stoning, not just for a woman who has already gone and finalized the marriage, but for even for a woman betrothed. It's not a punishment that is often in, engaged, enacted, but she risked everything because if Joseph were to release her, the chance of her being remarried are slim to none. And the hope that she might have of a life that would even have a a bare minimum stability of food on the table and a roof over her head could easily have disappeared. And yet, Luke will tell us specifically, Matthew will tell us by her silence, that she accepted what God wished to do with her. His greater good would be worth any risk that she took. And she was willing to trust God for what the future would produce. Let's continue. We've noted already twice that Mary is silent in Matthew. She doesn't speak at all. Luke will have her give again, sing a song and give 
responses to angels. We will hear her voice. But Mary's silence and stillness in Matthew is actually parallel to the more detailed image that we find in Luke. As no one, as, as the person who in her stillness, in her quietness, she is still saying, let it be with me according to your word. She's not objecting. She's not pushing the Lord away. She's not saying, not my body and not my womb. Instead of having her speak that, Matthew simply allows her to be silent. He has announced her as he has announced all the other women in the genealogy as having a great impact on what God wanted to do. And maybe if you were reading her story, and, and not just a Jew with curiousness, but maybe as a Christian who knew the Jesus story, even early on you may have heard of Mary, his mother, who was at the cross. And at least a couple of, of, uh, of the Gospels have her at the tomb at the resurrection. Her silence in this moment is an absolute submission to what God would do. And finally, we find her to be unexpectedly anonymous. An unexpected anonymity. She's not famous. There's no one that puts her in a big house on the hill. There's no one who also would say, here we have this paragon of virtue, that we have this lifetime of good things that she's done, and we know how she's prepared her whole life to be ready to do this. Instead, God simply sees the silent woman in the crowd, the young lady, let's pick an age, somewhere between 13 and 16 probably, whose life has to this point not really made a blip on the radar anywhere. But God's ready to change the world through her womb. You and I may sometimes think in the, in the big scope, in the big picture of things, what do we count at all? And God wants you to know over and over again as you count, you are making a difference. For us males, we'll never be the womb that bears the Son of God. But we will be fathers who lead children to know God. Both through our words and our actions. And you will be women whether you're a talkative woman, whether you're a silent woman, you will be a woman who has the opportunity, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, to make a huge impact on the world around you by the way you impact your family and your neighbors and your church family. Don't ever let your thought of your own anonymity keep you from being all that God calls you to be. Because He's always finding the anonymous, and lifting them up for his purposes. But Mary's is really not the only story. In fact, it's not the main story that Matthew wants to tell. So let's pick up the reading. J.D. read through 18. Let's pick up in verse 19 and read together. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you're to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. The naming of the child, and notice that, G, that, that while in Luke, the angel tells Mary that she needs to name the child. Here the angel speaks to Joseph 
in a vision and said, you need to name him Jesus. And while it doesn't show up so much in the Greek that the Gospels are recorded in or in the English that we speak, which reflects those Greek and Roman Latin roots, the name that is announced here is the name Joshua, or you might say it, Yeshua. And it has a meaning. It's not just a name you picked out of the the sky and said, I want to do that. Nobody called 20 Chick-fil-A's to see if this would be a good name to call someone. Instead, this name, Yeshua or Joshua, is, is a word that has a meaning. Yeah, on the front end is the word for Jehovah or Yahweh in Hebrew. And Yeshua is God will save. So, Back in the Old Testament, when Moses turned over the reins to a man named Yeshua, Joshua, the people would have, every time they said his name, Joshua is victorious, Joshua is leading us. They're saying, the one who saves, God who saves, is leading us. God who saves is victorious. And from his eighth day, when he would have been named, every time they saw him and said, what's his name? They would have said Yeshua or Joshua or as we say it, Jesus. And everyone's eyes would have lit up because they would have understand that they're saying God saves. And here the angel makes it clear that the name isn't just for the fun of it, but it will be what he will do for he will save his people from their sins. Let's continue with the reading. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophets. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, quoting from Isaiah chapter 7, which means God with us. And instantaneously, while in verse 16 Jesus is named as the Messiah, and when the angel appears in the dream to Joseph and tells him his name will be Jesus. His name is also Emmanuel. And again, its meaning is that God is with us. While Matthew writes into a a very Jewish kind of context and is the most Jewish of all the Gospels, he wants to be sure that everyone who reads it, including us 2,000 years later, that we understand that it means And who Jesus is as coming as Emmanuel is the concept and the reality that God has come to be with us. Continuing in verse 24, when Joseph awoke from sleep, it is the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relationships with her until she had borne a son. And he obediently named him Joshua, Yeshua. God saves Jesus. You see, the marriage process was very different at that time. People, a man and and a woman typically didn't arrange their own marriages. There was no dating process. There was no uh, interviewing different people through dating to see who you wanted to marry. Parents oftentimes arranged. and, And it's very common, even in this time, that the children would give some level of approval to the arrangement. Again, a ceremony, a betrothal would take place. Largely, a cup of wine would be poured. 
And the husband would hand it to the woman and said, I want you to be mine. And she would drink and he would take it back and drink as well. And at that moment, they were betrothed. But in reality, their marriage had already begun. Even though for one year, they would live apart. Now, that year was intended for many things, one of which we've already observed. For the woman, it was a year of testing. Has she been unfaithful? Is she the virgin that is supposed to be married to this man? And a year would give time for that to show up. There were also preparations of the husband going back to his family's home and building a room, a place where they would live in his larger family context. What would happen then at the end of the year, there would be this, this great ceremony, this incredible parade where the groom would leave his own home and there would be musicians and dancers and people celebrating and he would go to the bride's home and he would announce that he's there and the, the company would announce that he's there and she would come out prepared to be married. They would go back to the father's home where feasting would go on for seven days and on the first night of that day, they would consummate the marriage a year after it began. The celebration would go on for seven days. But at that point, when she left her father's house, she was moving in with her husband. And from that day forward, she lived with her husband and his family. The language right here at the end is very unique. Not only does Joseph come to know that Mary is pregnant, and by the way, it is the commentary of the text that is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph is going to put her away. And it isn't until the angel announces to him that he knows that is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And yet he interrupts the year-long waiting process. Probably there wasn't a big parade. Probably there wasn't a feast. Probably there wasn't all the things that you would associate with that great wedding day. The celebrations, the parade, the feasting, and all those kinds of things. But instead, at that moment, He took Mary from her house and brought her into his house to live with him, for him to protect her, for her to be part of his family. It's going to be real critical as we move through the rest of the sermon. He put her under his care, and yet, very specifically, the Bible typically wants to make sure we understand when a baby is born what union caused the baby to come. And this language is intended to make sure that we don't have any misgivings. She was pregnant before she moved in with with Joseph, and she did not have sex with him until after the baby was born. And he was named Jesus. The genealogy will call him Joseph, the husband of Mary. This is an interruption of the language that has taken place through all these generations. 14 from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14, or something like 14, from the exile to Jesus. It is a process that says, this is the father of, this is the father of, this is the father of. And now, Joseph is the husband of Mary. But he is not irrelevant to the story. He is also called, just as Jesus is, a son of David by the angel, which means he descends from David in his genealogy. Matthew and Luke agree on this point quite emphatically. 
Luke will say that they go to Bethlehem because it is Joseph's hometown and that he was of the family of David. So what can we learn from Joseph's story? What can we learn about Jesus and what can we learn about us? First of all, Joseph is a man who is described as as righteous, but it's a very unexpected righteousness. It is not a righteousness that comes from legalism. Because if it was a righteousness that came from legalism, he could have actually held her up for execution. That's what the law said. It wasn't even a righteousness that said, I'm not going to soil myself with this unfaithful woman. In fact, he said, I will take her to be mine because of what the angel said. But even before he took her as his own, His righteousness is typified not by a following of the law to have her condemned or even a following of the law to have her put away, subjecting her to a life of absolute poverty and great vulnerability for her whole life, but particularly for the time in which the baby would come. His righteousness is full of mercy. His righteousness is full of pity. And we have to hear the echo of David's psalm. I don't require sacrifices. What I want is a contrite spirit, a spirit of obedience, a spirit of great love and mercy. Paul will say love covers over. Love fills in the gaps of many sins. And here Joseph lives into that rule, that concept, that idea And as we see Jesus grow, isn't it he the one who says, legally I shouldn't eat with them, but compassionately I will bring them to me. I will go to their home. I will break bread with them. I will let them touch me in ways that others don't. An unexpected righteousness. Secondly, there's an unexpected vision here. I don't know about you, but I've had lots of dreams some of which woke me up in the middle of the night, not just because they were scary, but because they seemed to be profound. I have never thought about the dreams that I've had and said, my life needs to go in a whole new different direction, that I need to do something completely unexpected because of what this vision says. And yet, Joseph is a man who, having received this vision, and let's be sure and say that in his day and time, having a dream that the Lord visited him or an angel visited him or he hears from God is something that's held as very profound and he would have responded differently to it than maybe you and I would. But again, it's a vision that is contrary to everything that he's brought up to believe. It is contrary to everything he thought his future was going to lead him into, but it was consistent with something that God wanted to do. I just want to be real careful here because we can all be people who kind of go off in our own way saying, oh, God gave me a vision and and he said I need to do this. And what I want you to see for certain is that the vision that God gave him was not to go and do something radical in the sense of against God's will, but it was, I realize that this is different and I realize that it is not normal and I realize that it's not what you expected But this is the Holy Spirit at work. This is God's will coming about in a way that no one ever expected. And because of that affirmation, 
Joseph chose to see the vision of a child. It's ludicrous. Conceived by the Holy Spirit that doesn't happen that way, can't happen that way. It's never happened that way. And it hasn't happened that way since. And yet he saw it as reality. And he didn't just bring Mary along as if she was some sort of concubine or servant. Someone who just kind of needed to be taken care of. He took her as his wife. And although their relationship was not consummated until after the child is born, there is nothing second-class citizen or second-class wife about their relationship. He sees it differently. He sees it with God's compassion. We see this in Jesus' life consistently. Again, a different vision of the poor, a different vision of those who have diseases, a different vision of those who are blind, a different vision of what laying your life down looks like. And he followed God every step of the way. Not only did Joseph see it, but Joseph, in a very unexpected way, obeyed. It was something that put, again, his life that he anticipated on hold so that he could do what God needed to be done. I don't know if you've ever stood in a place where obedience is going to cost you something. Where obedience is not going to let you be influential the way you thought of yourself as being influential. Where obedience is going to cause you to be financially poorer than you would have thought you would have been. Where obedience is going to not necessarily raise others' opinions of you. And yet you have the invitation to obey. And just as Mary did in saying that her womb could be God's womb, Joseph does in saying that Mary will be my wife. I don't know what that first night was like. I don't know what that night that he was born was like. I don't know what the rest of their life was like, but I have a feeling that it always kind of had an echo of that idea of we're doing it for God. And it never stopped. Matthew's genealogy might appear to just be a list of the bloodline of Jesus. Descendants of blood that came down from Abraham to David and from David to Jehoiakim. And from Jehoiakim all the way down to Joseph. These interruptions of the women, however, are always about an unexpected insertion of something that God wanted to do that was above and beyond the idea of a pure genetic line. The greater and higher truth is not that they are descendants of blood, but in reality that they are heirs by faith and heirs because of their heart that is turned towards God. You see, if we read the way that Matthew states the genealogy, Mary is not related to David at all. As a good Jew, she would have come from the line of Abraham at the top of the genealogy. But Matthew is not trying to connect her genetically to David. Instead, it is Joseph that fills that role. And so we have this powerful sense a greater sense of how Joseph being the father of Jesus is not just about 
well, we need a male role model around. We need someone to teach him how to be a man. We, and, then, and then, again, I've heard this sermon preached. And then we need to get Joseph out of the way before his ministry begins. Because we don't ever hear of him at that point. But it is through Joseph that he is the son of David. But it is Joseph and Mary, and Mary particularly, that Matthew presents as a descendant of the faith like Abraham's. Yes, Lord, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And a heart, as David had described, a pure heart that yearns first and foremost for God. So it's not a surprise that she would be Jesus' mother. Maybe what's most unexpected in this story is the way that the joy that we so often associate with the coming of Jesus is not just a response to the miraculous gift of Jesus. Joshua, Yeshua, the one who saves us. Or Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, God's King who would come to rule forever. Or even Jesus, come to be with us. God, come to be with us, Emmanuel. Great gift. And our response should be an exultation of joy. But it's not just that response. But in a greater way, that joy, the joy of this season, the joy that we should carry with us all year long is the result of living a life of humble submission. Humble submission to not just the miracle of the coming of Christ, but the miracle that God would call us to be his people. And in our day and time, to be like Jesus in our own way, to be God with the world, to be his blessing, to be his light, to be his salt, every single place that we go, that will only come through the most dedicated kind of submission, the kind of humility that is antithetical to our human will. A submission to the miracle that God would call us to be people. Not because of genetics or because of labels or because of traditions. You know those people in the Jesus story. They're called Pharisees. They wore the right label. They followed all the right traditions. They could trace their lineage and purity all the way back to Abraham. But they were the one who wouldn't take a risk on the Messiah. They were the one who didn't want to give mercy the way that God wanted mercy to be given. And particularly, they were the ones who didn't want their lives turned upside down to trust in God and follow Jesus. That's where the joy comes. That we would be people who do take risks. That we would be people who do give mercy in ways that are beyond ultimately our own capacity as a person. That we would trust God to change our lives into what he wants them to be. You're invited today to take the next step of humble submission in trusting him. The one whose coming brought joy to the whole world. And that showed each of us how to experience that joy through faithful obedience. From the very moment that he was born. You can have a conversation with the people sitting near you. You're welcome to call one of the ministers or the elders to engage in this conversation. But really, it should be much more simple than that. It should be a conversation with friends over coffee 
It should be a conversation in families around a meal. How is my life submitted to what God wants as opposed to trying to make God fit in to my life? If you want to begin that conversation and you're online with us, we invite you to text the number that's right there on the screen. We'll be glad to respond and want to start that conversation of what that, wants, that looks like. Because God wants all of us to have the life that's found in His Son. And God wants all of us to find the joy that only comes when we give our whole self to Him.